0: Welcome to the Grok Science Show. My name is Chanan. Have you ever wondered what happens to a whale when it dies? Who are the vultures of the ocean that shows up when a whale carcass drops to the bottom of the ocean? It turns out there's a whole cleanup crew involved. Now think of the weirdest creature you could possibly imagine. How about a cigar-shaped creature with five eyes on stubby stalks a thin segmented trunk protruding from the head that can reach back into the mouth like an elephant. The animal I'm describing is the opabinia, a bizarre creature that lived during the Cambrian period at the muddy bottoms of the ocean. Why is it so odd-looking compared to the animals we know of today? These are just some of the questions Dr. Stephen Polumbi discusses in his book, which just came out in February, called The Extreme Life of the Sea. Dr. Palumbi is a professor of biology at Stanford University and the director of Stanford's Marine Laboratory at Monterey. He partnered up with Anthony Palumbi, a science writer and novelist, who also happens to be his son, to write this book. Each section reads like a vignette with evocative accounts of the strange and diverse creatures of yesterday and today that populate the oceans. I got to talk with Steve about the book as well as what it's like being a marine scientist and being involved with film projects, TV shows, and book writing. I dove into that
1: freezing soon with a parasite attached to me. I'd hope this all below would give us what was wet about. Yet for the vessel kept it sustain. I've always been interested in, in the ocean and, and the life in the ocean, I think, since, since I was about eight or so. And I discovered in college that there were these things called uh, university professors, and and they got to do this amazing work uh, all over the world, so uh, that's kind of what
0: sucked me in. Okay, so a lot of professors are very involved with their research, and and that's their main focus, so what led you to be more involved with writing books and, and being involved with film, TV shows, and things like that?
1: I was also pretty involved in while in, in high school and in college in, in both theater and in writing uh, because they were just fun, and I enjoyed them a, a huge amount. And uh, the initial stages of doing lots of science doesn't give you a whole lot of extra time to, um, to do those things, but, but, af- but after a while you, you sort of get enough entrenched in the science Part of things that you can you can begin to take a little bit of extra time and uh, move them along, uh, or t- t- take that time and turn it into other kinds of projects. Uh, when I first wrote my first popular science book, uh, I know the kids were getting a little bit older, mm-hmm. and uh, I had a few extra moments here and there. Uh, I found I really liked it. I found there was a great audience for it, and. Um, you know, what we do in universities is, is to teach, and what, what we do in research is actually to teach as well. It's just a different audience, and and in this case, it's, it's another kind of, of teaching. It's just a very different audience. I've, I've come to realize that that audience, the audience that doesn't have access to university research and the scholarly publications in the world, that, that audience really is a great one. It's very, very fun to work with And uh, it's, I think, something that uh, We need to do a little bit more of
0: Absolutely, and, and that's a big reason Why we have a show like this one Yeah, oh, we homes. actually did an
1: experiment Tony and I uh, my, my co-author is my son, Tony, <laughs> who's a novelist And we, uh, we started out uh, With the idea of writing this book Strictly based upon The scientific work that was available To anyone um, On the internet because yes. uh, there's a lot of science available to anyone on the Internet. Uh, but it turns out that um, it's just not enough, and uh, a large fraction of the information that you can glean of the Internet from websites, et cetera, is simply wrong. So um, we we couldn't... Uh, our experiment failed. We couldn't write this book just from the information that is, is fully available to everyone. So the mission shifted, and part of what we've tried to do with the book with its, you know, over 700 or 800 different different citations and footnotes is to give people access to that information. Uh, Otherwise, they just don't have it.
0: Mm -hmm. And do you think that this this is a flaw of the system in which we disseminate science, or do you think this just creates an opportunity, like a niche for people like you and your son that can create a book like this to do that instead? I think it's both
1: a flaw and an opportunity. It's a flaw in that a huge amount of science is paid for by um, everybody, and people should have access to it. Uh, yet, if you try to to go on the, online and find a scholarly paper on say, the impact of global climate change on coral reefs, you'll come to a page that says uh, that you have to buy this article for twenty one ninety five or whatever. Um, even though the research was paid for by yeah. uh, by Grant. Um, but also, even if that flaw didn't exist, there would still need to be folks who spent time taking this huge volume of science and translating it and um, compressing it into the kinds of, um, of, of qualities that, that, that people will be able to, to absorb. And that was the other goal of, of this book, and the reason why I turned to, to Tony as the co author was that uh, scientific accuracy and, and completeness is great, but unless you can tell the story, well, then people are not listening. Yeah. In our, in our book, we have told stories about the life of the ocean and how these creatures live. The, 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 the lives are brought to life. Uh, in scenery and description and uh, in a sort of narrative flair that, that is more what you'd see in a novel than you'd see in a science book I just heard your voice, ringing like a bell, as if I had a choice, oh well.
0: So this book is divided into chapters focused on how the extreme characteristics of the sea creatures, such as you know, the most ancient creatures the the smallest creatures the strangest animals and how they deal with living in various extreme conditions so can you talk a little bit about which one that you enjoyed writing the most or one of one of your favorites and briefly given a few examples of, of the creatures that you talked about
1: Sure they, they all ended up being fascinating I have to say because you think about well what are the fastest Things in the ocean, uh, and, and, and how do they swim that fast? And for example, um, you think, well, uh, the fastest things in the ocean must be flying fish because mm-hmm. after all, they're flying, they're above the, they're they're above the water, and they move pretty quickly. But it, it also turns out that mahi mahi uh, have stomachs that are full of flying fish, mm-hmm. and and so we we built a, a drama about this to. If you think about a flying fish leaping out of the water and and skinning across the surface, it turns out that, scientifically speaking, it's not flying, it's gliding. Those wings are actually just gliding wings, and what happens with a a gliding fish is it's going to come down. Now under that gliding fish is a mahi-mahi swimming at the same speed as the flying fish is is gliding, just waiting for it inevitably to come down. you can build a, a sort of dramatic encounter between these these two fish, one, a predator, one the predator, one fleeing the predator, both using the abilities that they have, um, to glide or to or to swim very fast to, to achieve their own ends, but in conflict with one another about how that's gonna be. So instead of just talking about how flying fish glide, um showing that, and then talking about how Mahi Mahi swim fast. We put them together into a scene that, that shows how they live their lives and, and what pressures they're under.
0: And obviously these pressures are not in a vacuum. They're in context of each other in this relationship.
1: Right. And, and we, we spent a great deal of time just trying to set that scene like, like a novelist would, and, and just let it play out, build it around what we know about uh, the physics of flying fish and the the swimming speed
0: be the mahi but then let the drama play out yeah actually so speaking of kind of that interaction between the different species so one of my favorite bits in the book was about the whale falls I was wondering if you can describe a little bit about what whale falls are for our our listeners I I refer to it as the three course meal but maybe you can elaborate a little (laughs) bit on that well,
1: I'm not sure I'd use that sort of <laughs> analogy, but <laughs> um, it certainly is a three-course meal for, uh, for, for other critters. So whales are one of the biggest chunks of food that the deep sea ever really sees. Most of the deep sea is dark and cold and there's not much food in it. But every once in a while, a whale will die. And a whale dying usually is in the middle of the ocean, and it'll, it will fall very quickly to the bottom. And so, imagine you're some food-starved bottom sea creature. All of a sudden, this enormous chunk, tens of tons of blubber and meat and bones, flopping down right next (laughs) to you—an incredible source of food. Well, there's a lot of creatures out there that are skimming around the bottom of the deep sea, waiting for these. They have the ability to find whale falls from far away, and within. Within days, uh, these mobile scavengers are around the whale carcass, um, chewing it up. Mm-hmm. Basically, i um, pecking away at it like uh, ocean vultures, and reducing it from um, its fleshy bulk to to just bone. Well, there's other critters that come along and start eating eating that part. There's other critters that come along and are predators, the organisms that are there as the scavengers. So an enormous little ecosystem builds up in just uh, a few days or a few weeks. What's left of the bones, but they are pretty valuable as well as food. And there's a whole set of other organisms that have adapted to land on those bones and burrow into them and feed off the oil-rich um, parts inside. And so we spend some time talking about some of those organisms, like uh, one called Osidax, which mm-hmm. has a lovely Latin name of of snot um, flower,
0: uh, <laughs> because it, it burrows down into these bones and then it sends up a little tendril
1: outside them. Um, and uh, people have been, become fascinated with how these critters not only find these whale falls but also use them so completely. At the end. Uh, whale gets stripped of its flesh it's sitting there the dismembered skeleton and then even the bones melt into the bottom as they're consumed by these other creatures
0: So this is is very interesting because you talked a little bit about how with the human activities like whaling could affect how these types of processes shape the underwater scenery. Can you talk a little bit about that as well? Yeah,
1: that was a that I did with um, a friend named Carol Ann Button some years ago. And the idea was that uh, back before whaling started, when there were millions of whales cruising the ocean, they were falling at a certain rate and, and these deep-sea critters had adapted to this steady supply of whales falling out of what to them is the sky. And that's probably been going on for the last 25 or 30 million years. With whaling and the reduction of whale populations, says, say, 5 or 10% of what they used to be, that food supply will have dropped off. And because it's such a very different kind of food, it's hard to replace it any other way. In fact, one of the most favorite scientific uh, paper titles that that I've I've ever done, one of my favorite titles of my own papers among, I don't know, 200 or so, Mm -hmm. is a paper we wrote called uh, Whales Don't Fall Like Snow. And that's because most of the food in the deep sea comes from something called marine snow. It falls very lightly and evenly across the bottom, of whales fall of the bottom. Whaling will have changed that enormously. And, um, it's just an interesting way of thinking about the impact of people on the on the deep sea that we wouldn't have thought about otherwise.
0: Right, and that is actually one of the focus of one of the later chapters in your book, where you discuss the potential changes that the ocean is experiencing that could lead to new extremes. So what message would you have for the readers and for our listeners about the future of the ocean and what we can do? Well, first, I'd
1: say we tried in the other chapters to to not follow a very typical environmental science trajectory, which is, is usually, um, you say, here's a wonderful part of our natural world. This is the way these organisms work. They're, they're fascinating and great, and they're in trouble we're changing their planet and and they're about to die and things are going extinct and it's all your fault. Mm-hmm. That's the typical story arc. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, it's largely true, but you can't keep telling that story over and over and over without exhausting people, especially about that it's your fault part. Um, so we tried to, to build the beginning of the book around these creatures and what it is they're doing now. Um, and... Uh, and how they live their lives without a huge sermon at the end of every story. Yet that sermon still needed to be told, and so the back end of the book is about the future extremes. Uh, The ocean of the future uh, will be, there'll be more of it because of sea level rise. Um, It'll be hotter, it'll be more stormier, and it'll be more acidic, and all of those things are layered onto the other kinds of changes that we are uh, exacting on the ocean. Um, adding lots of pollution, adding sediment, destroying habitats, um, dumping a huge amount of discarded fertilizer into it, uh, sewage, et cetera, et cetera. So all of those changes in the world's oceans are having a, a serious toll on how the oceans work as ecosystems. And the last two chapters of try to lay that out as, as a serious problem in the oceans. Um, but also lay out that the the ocean basically is fighting back. Uh, It's a hugely productive place. It's got creatures that have survived for a very, very, very long time as the the planet has changed. Uh, And and the basic point is um, the ocean's fighting back. If we give it a chance, it can still thrive, and we're still in a position of choosing to have the ocean be able to thrive uh, in, in the next century or we're in the position of choosing that it won't. And, and we're at a pivotal point right now that, um, that, that we have to at least be aware of. Yes, absolutely.
0: that the ocean is becoming more acidic was also along with the observation that there are a lot more jellyfish that are proliferating. Is there some insight you have about that as this is an adaptation of the jellyfish to somewhat of an ex- extreme um, characteristic of the ocean?
1: Yeah, what we talked about in, in that is the idea of uh, what happens when you break food chains in the middle. Um, so at any system i like the ocean it's got small critters bacteria microbes and they they create food for things that are a little bigger than them and so that that food energy um moves from the smallest critters in the ocean all the way up into the bigger and bigger ones we get we get tuna and bills and whales and sharks and all that Mm -hmm. but they're all linked to the very smallest parts of the ocean in these things that that the ecologist calls chains. so if you break a chain in the middle by, say, overfishing uh, the sardines or the anchovies or the small fish, well, what happens is that their prey that, that usually they eat up can accumulate. And, and in that case, there might be small crustaceans called copepods pods that, that accumulate and build up in the ocean. Without the normal fish supply that goes on to eat them, then other critters that could eat them take advantage, and that's where the jellyfish blooms come from. And, and that was seen especially in the Black Sea in the, in the 80s and the 90s when a combination of factors led to an incredible bloom of uh, jellyfish in the Black Sea. Uh, they were there eating the copepods because we had so disrupted the normal ecology food chain mm-hmm. that there was a bonanza of this food out there in the ocean that otherwise would have been eaten by the normal food chain.
0: So, okay, going back a little bit more into some of the really fascinating stories that you have in the book, speaking of jellyfish, you talked a little bit about this uh, immortal jellyfish, uh, and I I was actually pretty amused with the reference you made to Dr. Who, because I actually started (laughs) watching that show recently, I was like, oh, I know what he's talking about, but yeah, can you... uh can you just disguise this, this really amazing characteristic that jellyfish have? And is this for all jellyfish, or just some species?
1: Well, it's not all jellyfish. It appears to be just this one. And this one has been called the immortal jellyfish uh, because it has what, what seems to be almost the unique feature of being able to age in reverse. Most of the time, you know, critters, they're, they're born, they're... they're start with it as an egg, and the egg develops, and you, you, you move along into greater and greater maturity, and as you do that, well, you're kind of stuck there. You can move forward in life, but you can't move backwards, and these jellyfish are actually able to move backward. Um, if the conditions get harsh or things aren't right, then the jellyfish can essentially shrink down and turn back into more of the embryo that it started with. Um, it can go back to an earlier life phase and then start all over again someplace
0: else. That, that, that just not possible.
1: <laughs> and differentiation uh, is really just applies to that one jellyfish. And, and as far as I know, nothing else. That's
0: right. Yeah, it's interesting because when I saw your book, I was... I was like, he totally stole my idea for a book that I was thinking about. <laughs> and Actually, I was <laughs> thinking about a children's illustrated book on impossible things that are possible. <laughs> so a lot of the things you describe are, are just exactly, just they seem impossible, but yet, you know, this is our world. So I think that's wonderful. Maybe I'll let well, you be great. a collaborator on my book. I would encourage you to
1: go ahead with that book because it's... Uh it is those kinds of things that really excite imaginations and getting those kinds of things in in kids heads so they know what's possible is really
0: is really good yeah so, so okay i i guess i one last question for you so i'm interested in research and doing science and, and but i also really love doing this show and just talking about science and how wonderful it is so how how do you Balance all of these different roles or these different hats that you have for, you know, being a researcher, a professor, and also having a, a hand in all these other projects.
1: Uh, you know, I guess it really boils down to for, for me, I I like I like to find out things, um, and and sometimes you find them out by doing the research online or or or. or uh, in of this sort of book and you know, we had to we had to find out what animal is the hottest water in the planet and how do they do that so that was that was really interesting to just go and dig through all that stuff to find that out yeah um, there's some questions that I, I want to find out that nobody knows the answer to like where are the world's strongest most resistant corals and how do they do that yeah so over the last 20 years, thirty years I've developed the uh, the ability to use genetics and DNA to answer questions like that. And and and, and to me it's a continuum. Uh, I, there's questions I want to know the answer to, sometimes I have to go do the work myself. Sometimes I can find out by digging through the literature and finding out that way. Yeah. Um, what I what I think about science and I think about what it what it takes, what it really takes is it's this desperate internal burning need to know things.